Okay, so we're back. <laughs> yes, finally. Uh, it's uh, episode 19 of the Bulak podcast, uh, coming to you from Rabat, Morocco, after our summer hiatus. Yes, our long summer break. Yeah, I guess it was like a month and a half. Mm. Uh, you know, apologies, but not really, because we, <laughs> we, we needed it. Um, but uh, we're back to talk about um, all the books that we've been reading and thinking about and the books, book news that has happened in the meantime. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's back to school. Yes, this is our back to school podcast. We, uh, we both have uh, kids, so we, we, it literally is back to school this week. Um, and... Uh, and my son is actually starting to, like, this is his first year where he's going to be reading in mm. school. And he, where he's, like, over the summer actually learned how to read and started reading out loud to himself, which was kind of neat to watch. Yeah, so a lot of my summer reads were middle grade novels that I read with the kids or alongside the kids or in order to discuss them with the kids. I, I mean, to, to me, summer is a little bit guilty pleasure reading. Well, the last thing we talked about, I think, or one of the last things we talked about was, like, what is or isn't appropriate um, summer reads or, ah, quote-unquote, yes. beach reads right. and, and so on. And I actually, I have, I have a few more th- thoughts about that. Um, I uh, did a fair amount of some reading with my kids and so, with my son and some and, so, and quite a bit of reading on my own partly because at one point this summer my back went out and I was incapacitated so I had like a lot of time to mm. do nothing but read um, that sounds lovely <laughs> except for the back going out part yeah yeah I would have taken part of that but not the other um but but so, so speaking though of school um and 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 going back to school and reading so I just published this article recently that was based off the work of someone who I think I sort of came across online probably thanks to you. Could um, be. Who is Erin, and I may massacre the pronunciation of her last name, Tuhig? I, I know how it's spelled. <laughs> yeah, who, who, who is a professor um, at Georgetown University, uh, I think in the French department, if I'm not mistaken, and, and who writes about North African literature, and who writes specifically about um, depictions of education in novels, which, considering that, uh, you know, I, I write about education and I write about literature, I feel like I should have already sort of thought of that topic, but actually um, her work was sort of made me think about things that hadn't occurred to me before. Um, and, and specifically, she sort of talks about um, the way there are all these novels in Morocco and Algeria that are really, really critical of the educational system and the school experience. And that sort of raised the question of who are you writing a novel for since the educational systems in these countries basically in the, in the way they're represented, like won't produce the future readers of your work. Right. Yeah, and uh, I guess that, you know, that's a general criticism uh, that many people have lobbed at Arabic literature, that it has become a sort of a, an elite form uh, literature that's written for other literateurs in this very narrow circle, that it's not written for a broad public school educated audience, that it's instead, you know, 
that there are, that there is not as much sort of romance literature and detective novels, fun literature aimed at a mass pop audience as but, you might find in some in some other eras of Arabic literature. But those books wouldn't be taught in school. No, like those books are no. there, but the school systems won't choose to put them on the curriculum. Sure, but I'm saying that there aren't as many of those books because literature has become much more about this audience uh, of people who are super passionate bibliophiles versus uh, sort of a broad church literature where there is m more pop literature. I thought there had been a sort of... Uh We've seen detective and sci-fi and all these genres becoming more popular. There's, there is a little bit of that. But, you know, generally, if you look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, there's been less of that. And alongside this anxiety about who reads and... Uh, there, was a, there was a recently an interesting uh, interview, not to totally derail us, sorry about this, with Ma'an Abu Talib in uh, Bidun. And sorry, remind our listeners. Ma'an Abu Talib is a Jordanian novelist, and he has out one novel, uh, All the Battles, which we've talked about previously here. He also, and this was not about his novel, he also is the editor of uh, a music magazine, and that was a, that interview was about that and about writing in a sophisticated, interesting way for taxi drivers, for for the masses, for people all across. The Arab region um, to to engage with uh, with music and literature and literature about music, and he he put forward the thesis that people who say Arabs don't read are just writing in a lazy way. That we need more, you know. He said we need more literature about sports. Obviously, his book is about since it's sports. about boxing, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, but it, it was a really interesting interview about also how they had made, built their magazine, by not by finding writers who were already writing about music. He said the writing of music had come, become sort of stale, like your, your grandpa writing about music, um, but by running their own uh, literature workshops and courses about writing about music. I mean, I completely agree. I think that there's certainly... Like, that there should be more engaging writing about culture and pop culture and culture more broadly defined and that uh, people should be... I mean, that, that, that the idea of literature should be expanded, perhaps, to include more genres. I'm a little skeptical of this argument that, like... I mean, that sort of puts the burden on 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 people producing literature. Like, if... Pe that, sort of if people don't read your books it's because you're too highfalutin you're being too much of an intellectual like you're uh -huh. writing too uh into literary a way i mean sh i mean sure in the sense that i'm sure that you know there is probably plenty of like bad pretentious writing but there's also plenty of like you know extraordinary and 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 I think also it's sort of, there's something slightly condescending in that argument, which implies that like a taxi driver could never read uh, a great classic, you know, high literary work. Like he needs something, you know, more populist and about I don't sports. think, oh, well, then I've misrepresented the, the argument. Because I think the argument was instead that to write very sophisticated, interestingly, uh, work about pop culture, to have everybody uh Everybody across the board from many different social classes and backgrounds read it. Yeah, I mean, 
and and we should just link to this interview, which I haven't read, mm. and I'm uh, I'm curious to read, and I don't want to sort of like jump down the throat of an argument that I haven't <laughs> that I haven't read, and maybe the thing is also like certainly um, because there's maybe not a lot of diversity in the kind of people who choose to become novelists and writers. So in that sense, the breadth of topics and concerns and styles may be, may be narrow too, because right. it's not a profession that a broad spectrum of people engage in. And uh, even where there is broad writing, it doesn't necessarily get from point A to point B. So let's say that there are some fun, uh, new science fiction YA writing going on in Cairo, well, how would you find that here in Morocco? Right. It would never, you'd never be able to find it. But I don't, th I guess my, my feeling is I, I don't feel like the reason that, and, and the whole question of like people not, do people not read itself needs to be sort of like taken with a grain of salt. Right. I feel like the reason is not because there aren't good things to read. There are obviously plenty of great things in, in, in different registers. It's that somehow... Uh, I think, you know, there's a pretty widespread, generally recognized critique of the educational system in most Arab countries as, like, not being very successful at introducing uh, the reading of literature in a way that engages people. And whether it's, like, the choice of texts in the curriculum or the way people, the texts are treated or discussed, like, I don't, I don't know exactly, um, but... Uh, the 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 problem is not, I think, a lack. I mean, you could put together a great curriculum for like every grade of school in Arabic literature. Sure. Like, there's no. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're accessible. So when my uh, my oldest son started school in Cairo, there was no Arabic literature in the library, and he would come home every day, like you said, he'd be so excited about his English class, and he'd be so excited about his French class, and his Arabic class was like about memorization and reading from the the, te the government textbook, which was super patriotic and right, like but that's pedagogy, right? Morals-based and boring, and yeah, so so it drove kids who loved reading to read in these other languages, right, right. And, and then there's a sort of more general question of, so one of the, the books that I um, read sort of partly because of Erin uh, writing about it uh, in her work on, on, on literature and education is this novel by this Moroccan writer called Mohamed Nedali, and it's called uh, Grâce à Jean de La Fontaine, so thanks to Jean de La Fontaine. And it's a story of like a... Uh, a, a young Moroccan teacher who's just finishing teaching college so and then he's in his sort of first year of work and still still passing examinations basically to become a full-fledged teacher and gets sent to some you know uh, rural uh, village I think already as punishment from the beginning and then it you know gets on bad terms with his boss there at the school who takes the entire thing I mean uh, he, who uses his position basically to like extort the young teachers the female ones for sexual favors and the male ones for just you know free lunches and general uh, sycophancy and um the whole book is a story partly of him sort of not wanting to knuckle down to this guy, but the rest of it is of him, like, 
managing to survive and become a teacher, but partly by like not being a good teacher, like by cheating, by regurgitating things he doesn't believe, by gaming the system right. to reproduce the same system. And, it, and it's funny. It's a funny book, and it, but it's a really dark view of education as a system in which there's like no place for free thinking. Right. Or for integrity. Mm-hmm. So then it's even, it's besides the sort of pedagogical question, it's the sort of question of, like, how, you know, literature, I think, implies a sort of creative spirit and also, like, critical observation, and, and you're not cultivating that in students either as future writers or readers. Yeah, I think in any coming-of-age novel, you have some educational aspect, but probably more... So I think what's maybe more interesting in Moroccan novels that I've seen is that there are more... And in, in novels, Anglophone and Francophone novels, you would have... Or, or in, in novels written in the U.S., there are a lot of professors, you know, because as a second job, many writers are also professors. So there is that aspect of education in, in American novels. But I think in a number of Moroccan novels that I've seen, like Mohamed Zefsef, he was a secondary school teacher, that there are more school teachers mm. in, uh, in uh, novels from the Maghreb than, than you would find. So that that, that that is more of a concern. Um, in part, I think, just because that's where people are in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I was told of a, of a certain generation, like kind of the previous generation of writers, quite a few of them, once you're, a, you know, a well-known writer or as you become a, a novel, also had university positions. Mm. That is sort of less true of the current younger generation of, of writers. And also, with, with, I mean, narratives about education, like, first of all, a lot of them had to do with colonialism before and right. sort of with the first iteration of colonial schools and that huge sort of cultural gap between students and their parents and between languages and the home and the school and all that. But also those stories, many of which were written then in a, 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 a colonial, I mean, in another language, in a language acquired under colonialism, so in Morocco written in French, tend to be stories where even though there's a price and even though there's a lot of mixed feelings, like education ultimately is a transformative acquisition. It is something acquired and something of value. The current like con- batch of novels about education in Morocco are just like so dark. And like, it is no longer in Nadali's book. It's like not a thing of value to acquire. It's right. even in question whether you can acquire an education at all in the current system. Like, well, that's a so more bleak. interesting question, actually. I mean, what is education, and how can you acquire it in this mass system that's set up by a government? I mean, it's a it's a more interesting way of looking at it. I think. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's not just the sort of philosophical question of does how what does one acquire when one gets educated. It's a, it, in this particular system, which is presented as like ultra dysfunctional. Right. And, yeah, it is interesting, and and it is the question more than those questions of identity or language from from a generation ago. My favorite, my favorite, probably the funniest thing in this book is at one point there's a scene where the narrator goes. There's sort of a hiatus in the story, and he goes on vacation to Agadir in southern Morocco on the coast, and he reads a like a French novel as part of the like nouveau roman. Uh, 
genre, school, I can't remember the author's name, and and he gets so frustrated with it, is that it's sort of like meaningless, you know, drivel, that he swims out into the ocean and buries it under the sand, and this, and this, and this foreign elderly tourist uh, sees him do it and reports him to the police, and so then he is taken into the police station on the charges of drowning a book, Fantastic. Yeah, it's funny. And then he defends him. He manages to defend himself by t- explaining to the police officer that the book was a book that was like critical of Morocco and talked about like prisons and human rights and and so the and so he ends up being like congratulated for his like patriotic you know murder of this book and and you know they just mostly want to be sure that it's never gonna come back up out of the sand. So it's it they're wonderful. It's a funny book. Like mm. it's got some good parts to it. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, yeah, I think that is the crux of the question about education is a universal one. Uh, now we have uh, in most countries widespread public education of one sort or another, of one kind of quality or another, more or less simply regurgitating what the sort of social norms are. And how, is it possible to become, what does it mean to be educated? You know, some people use the word, oh, these people are educated simply to be a class marker. You should know better because you're educated. You know, you went through these systems successfully. You graduated from some sort of university. But, you know, what, what does it mean to, can you really think critically? Can you really, how do you escape from these systems? What does it mean to have a system of education. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's, uh, no, there's nowhere where people, except, I don't know, maybe like Finland or somewhere, where people are like very satisfied with their with their education system. It does seem to be a particular, there's a particular sort of like sense of crisis around it in a country like Morocco and, and in, in others in the, in the neighborhood. Um, and it's a kind of tragedy for people, for young people to get parked for years uh, in places where... Well, I think part of the... I mean, okay, so I've only been here a year. I really... I think part of the, the crisis around education, though, is that you can't do anything with it, right? You, even if you do succeed, you go through all the hoops, you get your university degree, then you don't get a satisfying career. So... Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't lead where it's supposed to. Uh, and in fact, university graduates are more likely to be unemployed than people who don't go to university. And, you know, there's, I, you know, there's language that plays into it. There's the sort of general unemployment rate, but there is also, it's almost like a con or a scam that's played on people. Like people invest hugely in this in this system. Right, that's and, supposed to make you upwardly mobile. Right, right, that's supposed to deliver some sort of result. And then in the end, you're, I think, made to feel that you've failed in some way when it's actually the system itself. I mean, also, like, Morocco has free admission to university, but then, like, over 50% dropout rate because you let everybody in, but then they don't have the language skills and they get sort of cold by these tests. So... So then it looks like they're failing rather than the system is failing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, it's it's very complicated, but it's. Uh, yeah, it's, no, I, I taught here last year, and I taught to a, to a group that was Im- impossibly wide in in what they were capable of. 
mm. some students who had trouble assembling a sentence versus some students who were ready to work on a master's level on uh, and I'm you know meant to teach to all of them at the same time yeah yeah I find it a very interesting I mean I find the question you know I write about education I find the question of education like uh I mean it's something emotion something sort of actually quite deep and emotional because in the end it is sort of like about the the you know, the life that young people will have, like, uh, you know, it's not just the way parents care about their own children's education, but in general, it kind of, it strikes for me a kind of nerve about fairness mm. that I get really riled up about. Um, and also, like, I just hate, like, the idea of people, like, wasting time and not learning. Like, I like learning. It just bothers me. Can you imagine spending hours and days and weeks and years of your life and, like, not learning when you could be? Like, it's not hard to learn things. Right. Like, I don't know. Right. Uh, or like in um, uh, The Inheritance by Yasser Abdel Latif, you could be playing ping pong in the, in the back of the school. I mean, there are, I think there are a number of um, novels from, from North Africa where the school years are somehow mysteriously spent never doing any homework or learning anything except for, you know, where to find uh, some pharmaceuticals to get high on or... Right, so the novel you just mentioned came out this summer, right? From Seagull? Yes. And it's uh, Yasser Abdelatif's The Law of Inheritance. Right. I got it too in the mail, and where he sort of, a, a huge chunk of it just describes the way he was part of this little gang that, you know, seemed to have like never gone to class and got into drugs pretty early and found corners of the school to, to engage in their proclivities. And yes. The thing is that once you start thinking about education and books, like, I think the the mental list goes on and on, actually. Right. It's almost hard to think of a book that doesn't touch on education in some way. Right, right. As we were sitting here talking, I mean, I didn't put it in the article, but then I started thinking about, like, um, you know, uh, the Egyptian writer Sonala Ibrahim's book about going and teaching for a year in the United States. Right. Uh, Americanly. Um, Which uh, is distressingly not an English translation. Ah, and you recently talked on the podcast about this memoir. By Radu Ashur, which is about going to do her PhD in in the U.S. And a lot of her writing, like Spectres, is about her, well, it's about a a parallel character, a shadow ghost character, um, uh, who is also a teacher. And so it's about working in these uh, systems of corruption and corrupt uh, educational systems in Cairo and the frustrations of that for somebody who is passionate. So you can read her memoir and see how much she loves African-American literature, which is her, her focus, and just literature in general, how she's, you know, translating for joy. And then her, her, her later book, uh, Spectres, where there she is, her, and it's interwoven chapters, Spectres, which is translated, I think, by Barbara Romaine into English in 2010-ish. Um, there are parallel chapters. One is a history professor who's uh, Shagar, who's um, fictional, and then then it moves to a chapter that's about Radwa. And both of them are uh, professors uh, at Cairo University. And it talks about her own education in growing up in in Egypt, and then also trying to work in this system. And and yeah, it is about. The frustrations of not being able to do 
what you want to do. Yeah, because the school is kind of a great institution from which to talk about society, mm. right? There's power relations, there's generational conflicts, there's, yeah, the, 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 the list of books about schools just, just goes on and on, or even of, like, books with sections of, right. about, about education. And also because it's part of everyone's, like, m- strong memories, because it's mm. when you're young, it's formative, um... But anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll link to this article, and it mentions some books that, that, um, that I discussed uh, with Aaron Tuhig, and it mentions also other ones that came to mind, and then I'm sure, you know, there's, there's many, many more. And she's working on a book, or she's published a book about uh, no, literature so she, and education? So she's working on it. There's a book, she has a book forthcoming that I think okay. is called Contested Classrooms, um, and, it's, uh, and then the, the subtitle, I, can't, I, can't, I won't get exactly correctly, so I won't try, but it's about um, uh, both depictions of education in Moroccan and Algerian literature and ways in which literature has been taught in the classrooms in Morocco and Algeria. So it's sort of the whole symbiotic relationship from Excellent. both sides. Yeah, yeah, and I got a few suggestions from this. So there's more uh, Algerian novels that I'd that I'd like to read. Um, and uh, and then like the other thing I read this summer. Yes. Uh, is uh, finally, and you had warned me, but I read oh. the shell. Yes. By Mustafa Khalifa, and it appeared in translation from Interlink Books, I don't remember when, but by Paul Starkey. And it is a devastating uh, novel that takes place, the majority of it takes place in inside a prison in Syria. And it's uh, written, uh, it, it is a what they would, what you would call an autobiographical novel, so it's based in part on, on the author's own experiences. Uh, but it it is fictionalized. And he was there though for the period. I mean, the narrator and the author were both in prison for what is it, fourteen years? Or he gives twelve years? I can't remember. Yes, sort of from the mid eighties to the early nineties in Tadmor prison, which was the most infamous secret yes. prison in Syria. Yeah, there were a few other prisons he was moved to on the way there, as okay. I remember it. But yes, most of the time was spent there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you had warned me, um, and and actually, so remember when we were talking before about like uh, books we'd read in the summer, and I had said like it's hard for me to read a sort of really dark book when I'm on vacation. This is that kind of book, and I was thinking about why. And actually, it's not so much. It's because I feel bad. It's because the the sort of discrepancy between like being at the beach with your family and and a book like that makes it it just feels wrong like it's so it had to be a I had to come back and read it I mean I'm reading it for work in a way and 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 read it that way like um not in a place where I just felt like even more than I would normally this this like insane cosmic injustice going of, like, down into a one deep well mm-hmm. yeah of my existence versus that existence mm-hmm. and this sort of like universes apart that that you that you feel yeah i mean it's horrific and and i guess my argument was that then you can emerge from this novel and go out into the sun and not spend the next 6 months depressed 
Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just, I, I, I it, but it crystallized for, for me what my, my hesitation was, which is also almost like a feeling of guilt about, mm. about, uh, um, about uh, sort of reading a book that difficult in a, in a setting that would be so, as joyful as, as, as my family vacation was this, this year. Um, yeah, I, so, but anyway, I'm happy I read it. Like, I really am. I think it's a good book. Um, I like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think beyond the, uh, you must read this novel to understand the Syrian conflict level of, of talking about the book. It is also a novel about the, what the essence of humanity and human relations, uh, and how, how we can be kind to each other and how we can be cruel to each other and how those mechanisms work. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, it, it sounds... I don't know if it sounds surprising to say, but I found uh, it was not just, uh, I found there were things in the book that were uplifting as much as they were uh, tragic in the sense that like almost more shocking to me than the inhumane behavior, which one knows, uh, you know, is there. Like to me, the actual bravery and generosity of people under those circumstances was more amazing, like more inconceivable, right. like harder for me to, to imagine how someone can draw on those reserves in that situation. Because there really are instances of people being like so kind and so brave Yes, when they're within a situation that has been, de- that it's just designed to break them. They don't seem particularly bro. His depiction of the prisoners Many of them are not broken, although the entire experience is so, like, punitive and intended to do nothing but break people, I suppose. Right. Yeah, no, it, human beings are may, remain uh, amazingly, uh, you know, we use the word human to mean all sorts of things that I... But in this case, I mean humane, you know, retain uh, the best characteristics of what what we can be in, in these amazing, terrifying situations. Yeah. And I also think, like, the way he tells the story, so he so he sort of, um, you know, there are parts of it that are very graphic and sort of hard to read, but it is not, but that alternates with, you know, sections that are just actually explaining the logistics, which, you mm-hmm. know, that the, the sort of day-to-day of how things are arranged and, like, why the prison works in certain ways. Um, and, and he really you know, through, like, all these different anecdotes, like, you get into sort of the politics of the prison, you know, when different Islamist groups are present at one point. Right. You get into, like, the organizations of the of the groups. You get into the whole way the trials proceed, because it's a military prison, so, like, once a month, the this military tribunal comes in by helicopter and just con- convicts a bunch of people to death, basically, but it can happen after you've been there for three months or three years, and it's very arbitrary, but again, it explains these things. And so it's not just, you're not just reading. I mean, it's all very difficult, but he sort of, he does, he did record mentally, like all these fascinating, interesting things about the experience. And right. Put and them there's together. such a tremendous value to making this transparent. Uh, right. That yeah. does take some of the terrifying nature out of it. Although, really, the novel is still very difficult. 
I, I mean, I don't know if I want to get into, like, the, the father with the three sons who are all in it together, like, there are, there are, there are sections of the book where, like, I don't know how you can read it without crying, right? Like, where it just, and those also, like, are not, like, they're so powerful because it's, you don't feel, the book isn't written sentimentally at all. It's not no, written to make not. you cry. It's not written, it doesn't, it just... And that's, that's like late in the book that 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 section. I mean, yeah, it's. A really I would ex- almost say that his his aim was to show you these moments of right. beauty and grace that occur in these extreme situations. Yeah, yeah, that that for me was, and then and then in the sort of. Uh, not exactly a highlight of the book, but one of the other things in the book that just blew my mind was when he's finally released and he then has to, he's then transferred from one Syrian intelligence service to the next and they all insist on torturing him one last time because if they can get a little bit of information that the other ones didn't get, mm. they'll have a leg up on each other. And, and I mean, it's just so nightmarish. And also, but by then he's sort of so inured that... He doesn't, he really doesn't care. I mean, which, again, I can't conceive of how you arrive at that place, but, you know, he seems un, unintimidated, basically, at that point. But just the mechanics of these, and, you know, as they hand him over to the next intelligence service, like, don't tell them anything you didn't tell us. It would make us look bad. Right, right, <laughs> as if there's some alliance there. Yeah, yeah, as if, you know, you can see where I'm coming from, right. you know, this, this could affect my next promotion, you know. Good luck with your torture session. I right. mean, there's just... Yeah, it's wonderful because clearly the torturers see themselves as fully rendered humans. And so they become in the book in some way a fully rendered human, even though as you're reading it, you're like, you are not a human being. Well, I mean, but they are. Like, that's the yes, thing. Yes, they, no, they, I, I believe they're totally believable. I mean, that's who we, that's the thing that's so hard to grapple with is how can people do that to each other? And he doesn't do a lot of like theorizing or explaining on. No, the, this guy had a bad childhood, etc. Or ideology or mm. politics. The character of the doctor, there's a, do you remember? There's yes. A, so there's a character who basically kills all the, seems to be going around killing all the prisoners who knew him in a previous stage of his life. And it's so creepy, but there's no explanation. It's creepier because you never know why he did it. Right. It is a, I mean, frankly, it is a, it is a concentration camp story. It is a Primo Levi kind of yes, story. Yes. It is, it is that. It is just pure, how do you survive? But mentally and emotionally as well as physically and... Mentally yeah. and emotionally probably above all. And... And after, there's, there's, I don't know how much of the book is, remains after he's released, but that is much more of a sort of a dream world. It's much more, it's much less concrete than the world inside the prison. Yeah, it is. It's, and it's sort of more confusing. Yes. Like somehow the prison is, there's such utter clarity right. in the prison. Things and had become so regulated. He'd come to understand the world through this, through the prison. So then outside the way in which people relate to each other and what they want out of him is is confusing. Yeah. I feel though like a book like this and a few others, like this should just be like mandatory reading for like 
every fucking policymaker and pundit or anybody who wants to say anything about Syria or have any decision that has to do with like the international community's response to Syria, like they should just be like put in a room for a month and forced to read a bunch of like firsthand accounts and stories from this country. Like if they can't, you know, directly interview people or talk to them, but like they should be educated on uh-huh. this, you know? I don't yeah. think you could hold certain positions if you were like read these books. Yeah, no. But now I'm already pre-feeling disappointed in these people for skimming through, or or you know the sort of person who reads and said, "Yeah, I knew that," you know, rather than fully and or like this is <laughs> this is fake news, right? <laughs> rather than fully immersed fabrication. Uh, yeah, he, this is a novel after all. It's not real. Yeah, it is. A, it is a. It is a. A very strong. Entry in the unfortunately large uh, genre of prison memoirs, uh, which I, I, that that you find, you know, spanning from 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 Morocco to Egypt to Syria to Iraq to everywhere. Like. Yeah, no. In some other lifetime, I would love to read, do a comparative read of prison literature from, say, the U.S. and Arab prison novels, yeah. and see what things they share and what, what things are different. Because, yeah, I've, I've read a couple of prison novels from the U.S., but not anything to speak of. But I've definitely read a lot of prison literature uh, in, Ara- from, in and from Arabic. Well, maybe we should talk about that at some point. There's certainly a lot of it from in Morocco. Like, Morocco in the late 90s, there was just... It was, it was, it was really part of a political shift was the sudden... Uh, availability and publication of of some of these, and in fact, um, uh, Tasma Mart cell number ten, right. which is probably the best known uh, because it was one of the earlier first hand accounts of that secret prison in Morocco, is being translated into English. Right. This year. But um, don't ask me by who. I need to get those <laughs> details. Um, yeah. No. And there was a period in Egypt when. It seemed like everybody went to Nasser's prisons. Um, I, mean, yeah. I guess it couldn't have been everyone, but many writers were. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot. And, of course, there's a lot of Iraqi prison novels as well. Yeah, we could do whole episodes on it. Mm. Um, well, leaving prisons behind us for the moment. Uh, the other thing that I uh, sort of... Um, got into a bit this summer was actually like the debate over Nipal when he died over V.S. Nipal. Right, and I avoided that, so... Did you? Yeah, I did, I did. So usually I'm not like um, drawn to most of these Twitter controversies, but but when he passed away and I, and I could sort of see it coming, mm. I, actually, I actually was like, oh, this could be a good debate. Like, I'm kind of interested to read people's takes on him. Uh... And I have by no means read all his books, uh, but uh, I've read a fair amount of the of the reportage. And in fact, years ago, um, my husband Asandra and I went to India, and we and we read A Million Mutinies Now, which is not his first book on India; it's like his second or third. And we were pretty impressed. I mean, he's um, he's a great. Rep- Porter. Mm-hmm. Like he has an incredible eye for detail, um, and uh, and he's I think a, a, a talented writer. Then I also read because I'd been quite impressed with his work, 
Patrick French's biography of him, The World Is What It Is, which I think is the opening line of one of his novels, and which is an authorized biography that absolutely makes him, I mean, reveals him to be, to be a, a, t a terrible person. And right. particularly uh, to his first wife, uh, who he... Um, who he really took advantage of in in every way uh, and belittled and abused as well as like other women in his life uh, but it's not but it's a it's like a beautifully written biography and it's nuanced um, and it's not just you know a sort of revelation about what an asshole he was it's you know a really kind of like investigation of who this man was as a writer and as a person um, and what the relationship between those two sides of him were. So I was I was curious to sort of read people's takes and I feel like people's takes were very mixed. Like mm. um, uh, a lot of, there was like a really interesting sort of back and forth also between like other writers who come from non-Western countries and who can remember him um, sort of being a huge influence on their work and kind of showing them how to write about where they were from. Mm. But then also as, as, as time progressed, like, um, became more and more disenchanted or critical of his politics, basically. Especially, I think, his politics when they're present in his work. So his reporting from post-colonial countries, I think particularly what's problematic is what he writes about African countries and also about Islam, because he had several, but he had right. among, among the Believers, which I haven't read, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, he's a, he, he's a sort of... He, I think he liked to be to position himself as a sort of scathing truth-teller, like, and kind of against any sort of third-world romanticization. Right. And, you know, which is fine, because there was plenty of... BS uh, in that too, but um, right because there were a lot of um, writers who came from the so-called first world, you know, in order to discover something else about themselves in this right uh, more exotic, uh, primeval, you know, third world. Right, right. So, so critical of that. Also critical of like a lot of the like first post colonial national governments, which were in some cases, you know, corrupt and incompetent and repressive and things like that. And, mm. and, 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 and he writes about that and not, and also critical of colonialism itself in the first place. Like, I don't think that his work, uh, is a sort of celebration of colonialism. Um, it's just that sometimes I do think there is like bigotry. It, 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 it verges into bigotry mm -hmm. um but so i'm reading a house for mr biswas now because every everybody said that's the novel to read um and it's good it's it's good and it's not his politics aren't really on view particularly right uh it's a story i think that is in some way like a, a an imaginative tribute to his father who was a would-be writer, a, a, who was an unsuccessful, aspiring writer. Mm. Um, and it's just, uh, it's a very sort of local story about, like, you know, uh, 
you know, in Trinidad, marrying into a particular family, trying to make a living, trying to sort of like build a house of your own, literally have a place of your own somewhere that belongs to you. And I can see why people enjoy it. Mm. Well, and I mostly know him, I think. So I haven't really grappled with his oeuvre at all. Um, I, you know, there are just some writers who just, I just don't know. But I know him through Diana Adho. And who I know through Wagiraly, <laughs> right? So that's my rela- my relationship to him is knowing that uh, he has relationships with women who apparently have relationships with abusive men. Well, but also who edited some fantastic writers, like absolutely. Di- like Diana yes. Adhill. If you look at the men she edited, right? Uh, right. I mean, he's in good company. Yes, definitely. Um, but yeah, so the question of like, why is it that so many of the of of the men she edited were both talented and abusive, <laughs> kind of gets to the core of, of a lot of the, a lot of the sort of Naipaul conundrum, if there is one. I, I'm not sure. That, I think there actually is a, a way out of it. But you know, this 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 question that people debate about, uh, you know, the 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 how much the personal shortcomings and abhorrent behaviors and, pol- and perhaps political views uh, should um, prejudge the work mm. and how much the work, on the other hand, sort of somehow redeems the personal failings. Right. I think neither, actually. I mean, I think you look for the... You read the work as the work, and if the work is bigoted and narrow-minded, then the work is bigoted and narrow-minded. But if the work is beautiful, then no, it still doesn't redeem somebody's personal life. If they were shitty in their personal life, they are still shitty in their personal life. I agree. I agree. I think it matters when the... So so in in Nipal's case, in some of the reporting, I think it matters because his, his, some of his views actually inflect the reporting. And perhaps some of his personal shortcomings in the sense that like his egotism and his desire to sort of present himself as apart mm-hmm. and better, um, you know, leads him to take these kind of contrarian, but also slightly condescending positions. Like there's a sort of push and pull between his background, you know, um, from, uh, from a colonized people growing up in a even more marginalized colony and then like sort of becoming incredibly successful in the colonial capital and having faced discrimination himself and so he clearly has a lot of mixed feelings about his background right um and 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 whether you know and the opportunity quote unquote given to him by traveling to the center of power of this empire you know and what culture is superior to another, you know, but these things are mostly, I think, in his in his work, dealt with quite interestingly. He's one of those writers where, like, even when I, often when I, even if I don't agree with what he's saying, like he says it so clearly and forcefully and elegantly that I can argumentally with it, and it's a stimulating exercise. Right. Um, there's just enough intelligence in the way he makes the arguments and enough, like, ability. Because that's the other thing. In these debates about people, I mean, I think, you know, it's fine. Dismiss plenty of people. Don't read him at all if you, if you think that, you know, he... 
just other people you'd rather be reading. That's, that's totally fair enough. But sometimes people, I think, do underestimate how rare the level of writerly talent some of these people have is. Like, Nipple didn't get famous just because he wrote things that, like, you know, the Western establishment wanted to read. Like, right. he's a, he is a very good writer, you know. Right. And, and that's, you know, part of the interest. That's why people have strong feelings about it. Well, I mean, this is a totally different thing than, for instance, inviting Steve Bannon to headline your literary festival, where I don't think that he's come out with any clear or interesting books of or ideas of any kind. I, th- I mean, he just, like, he had slipped into sort of irrelevance. I don't understand why. No, it was difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I a, don't know. Sort of a clickbait invitation, I guess. Which has now been rescinded. I mean, but no, but that's the sort of, that, 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 that's a quite different thing. I think, you know, we're seeing these debates about sort of like all sorts of, you know, I don't know, Woody Allen, some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, do, do your feelings about his, 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 his personal behavior and, and his, you know, alleged crimes uh, affect, you know, whether you ever want to watch his movies again. Um, I think... I don't know, there's no, there's no easy answer, but I don't think, like you said, it's that hard to separate in a way. Like, you're responsible morally and legally for everything you do as a person. Right, go to jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, you know, you should, you should be. I mean, the thing is that, but, but the thing is it's you know, uh, the prestige of being an artist, and particularly a male artist, has, like, traditionally uh, allowed you to, in fact, to get away with, yes. like, some really abhorrent behaviors because of the aura of the great artist. And, and that I'm fine to see, like, completely chipped away because, you know, this sort of, like, excuse... You know, so Nibel had a lot of talent, but also he had the opportunity to have somebody just, like, you know, arrange his life for him, you know, with utter devotion uh, for decades. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's, that's a nice leg up to have if you're going to dedicate yourself to being a writer. Um, so, you know, that's not exactly a level playing field. And I think in that sense to reevaluate... Um, the balance between how we judge the man and how we judge the writer. I'm happy for that to see that happen. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, and all of the um, glorification of the writer, I, I don't need. That almost, that almost, that almost like puts being selfish as uh, not just an accepted, but, but an a necessary expected, criteria. Yeah, you need to be genius. selfish. Yeah. Like, you know, you need to be, you need to make choices. You need to make, women make sacrifices often. Right. Men make choices. I I mean, but yes, you have to prioritize it. And and not everybody's able to do that. You have to have ego often, I agree. I mean, you know, uh, or some, some... No, you have to have a belief in yourself that what you, that it's worth making these sacrifices to do. Or a desperate desire to prove to yourself that it is. It's, right. a, it's a special kind of combustible combination of insecurity and, right. and confidence that, that, that artists ha- and writers often have. But um, anyway, I haven't finished A House for Mr. Biswas, but I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. And it, it, is, it gives you this sort of 
texture um, of this place, you know, I've I've never been to of 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 homes of shops. That's what he's really good at of language of the dialogue. Like um, it's uh, it very much sort of takes you uh, into a specific place and time um, very 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 vividly. Uh, and I think that, that in terms of the public debate on Apple, it hasn't been particularly settled, but there were actually some like really nuanced, interesting essays and exchanges. And I'll share, I'll share, I'll share a couple of them that I like enjoyed reading. Good. Yeah. Well, usually I do get involved in all these Twitter battles. And one that I did get involved in uh, recently was uh, one in, uh, that took place in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. And, well, this is less of a Twitter battle, I suppose, than, um, than a Twitter movement. And I think, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, denigration of social media activism as being sort of unreal activism. And, and Are you a social justice warrior? Is that what you are? I know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I am, but... That's a sort of... That's a put-down, right? Uh, yes, it, it definitely... I think okay. that's an alt-right put-down of... Okay. I think it's the new form of PC... You are PC, now you're an SJW. Okay. Yeah, you do, but you do engage a lot on social media, way more than I do. Usually. I do, I do. And I don't know exactly, maybe it was, it was a few years ago uh, when I started to get interested in the censorship issues in, in Kuwait, um, which uh, started in the late 80s, actually, 1989, when there was a, a big hullabaloo over four books, and they were by Nasser Hamad Abu Zaid, Ghassan Kanifani, Nawal Sadawi, and Adonis. And it became such a big thing. So let me think. So Adonis, so you said it was last Adonis. one? Adonis. Okay, so poetry. Yes. Nawal Sadawi, I can see, feminism. Right. Nasr Abu Zaid was a sort of Religion, critical rereading re of Islam. Yeah. Yes, and Ghassan Kanifani, I assume, because in Men in the Sun... I mean, he, he, he was a teacher in Kuwait, and... Is it set in Kuwait? It's set on the border. I, uh, I mean, yes. I don't remember Kuwait well, figuring it, it prominently at all. It's not figuring, and I, I don't think it's named, actually. But, um... Anyway, this classic Palestinian novella, like... Right. About... Uh, that works on a sort of allegorical and a, a literal level about men trying to smuggle themselves across the border. Just for finance, they're just trying yes. to get go somewhere where there's jobs, yes. right? And they're hid inside a tanker. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so after this, it was such a big hullabaloo that the government was brought down by it. Oh, it was brought down by banning four books? It was brought down by allowing these four books or the discussion around whether they should be allowed or banned uh, so this cra these four books crashed the government. So since then, it, books have become a, a political football in, in the parliament, which sort of shields, has progressively more and more shielded the Ministry of Information from any scrutiny in terms of as much as they want to ban. It always seems safer, I think. So then there was a new publications law in 2006. I think it always seems safer to ban more. Um, and it's the Ministry of Information who does it. They do it, and, okay. and it's... Uh, apparently, in some way, Parliament shields them from scrutiny. They do not have to give any reason. There is no recourse. If your book has been banned, you can't then... Appeal. Appeal, go to court in some way. Uh, I wonder how many officials... Wait, how many books have they banned? So, um, 
Busane Alaise, who's a Kuwaiti novelist who, along with Saudo Sunusi and some others, are at the forefront of this pushback, um, has released a list that was more than 4,000, I think it was 4,300. I tried to read them, but, you know, it's, it's began yeah, to get boring after a while. That's a big Excel sheet. <laughs> um, from the last five years. And she had said to me in Wait, 2000... from the last five years? Yes. Been, so they're banning almost 1,000 books a year? She had said to me in 2016 that if you imagine uh, 500 books coming before them in in a three-month period, that they then look at about 11 and allow one. So a lot of books are also not banned, but they're held in this gray area of they're not permitted yet either. But so they're also looking at books in foreign languages? Because there aren't even a thousand books published. Oh, yeah, there are. There are a thousand books published. It, I mean, n not probably in Kuwait, but certainly across the region. There's... There's, there's. Oh, and you're talking about everything, textbooks and exactly. everything. Religious okay. books, uh, fiction, poetry, uh, chiclet, everything. Well, they clearly have like a monthly banning quota that they have to meet and they have to like, you know, put a certain number of, of books on the list. Yeah, and... and I think, you know, what really sparked this new thing that started with a protest, I think, on September 1st outside the Ministry of Information was it's just out of control, like the Granada Trilogy by Radwa Ashur, like books that, okay, yes, um, uh, Saudo Sunusi's Mama Hesse's Mice imagines this future Shia-Sunni war. Okay, maybe we can't talk about that, but we, another novel was banned, I think, just because they use the word P, the author uses the word P in it, you know, like, that's... It would be so interesting to be a fly on the wall in this office and, like, just see, like, who these people are and are they even reading them and, like, how does it work? Yeah, I don't know, but, uh, I don't... How could you possibly be... Well, if you only really address 11 books, maybe you, you read those 11 books. They must be getting reports of some kind. Yes, there, there There's, are... like, book informers. They have some network of people who is, like, pointing out suspicious stuff. Right. Well, Heber did a, a great sort of break down the steps on the process in Jordan of yeah, how the books get transported in, customs, calls, uh, the Ministry of Communications, I think, in Jordan. And then you have to... Then Aramex calls you, you go down, take one copy of your book down there, somebody writes a report on it, it goes to a committee, and then they decide, no, this book is not gonna be this book is not gonna be allowed in the country, then either you ship it back or they're destroyed. Uh, so But Kuwait is the worst offender. Kuwait in the region. is the worst I was not aware in the of region. That. And much worse than Saudi. Uh, particularly offensive when it comes to the book fair time, because even if a book is banned in in the Emirates, say, in your in the country in general, when it comes to the book fair, these are normally supposed to be sort of free zones for ten days. You can go buy whatever books you want. I really don't know the sort of logical underpinnings of this, but um, but it's but it's been like that. But in Kuwait, uh, more and more, there's just nothing allowed into the book fair either, a and things to I think. Ibrahim, Ibrahim Aslan's book, um, Two Rooms in a Hallway, uh, or Two Bedroom Apartment, or however we want to translate it, was banned. It's a book about um, getting old and dying and relationships. I mean, I really can't even imagine what you would find in there offensive. I would have to read it, like, 
word by word. Maybe he goes to the toilet at some point. I don't know. So, okay. And so what are you online activists up to? Oh, so... <laughs> anyway, so people after Spark, you know, start starting... There's also in-person protests. Um, and then people did this lovely thing, I thought. Um, they took pictures of the banned books that they have in their libraries, and then they, they were sharing those. So my banned book, you know, some people had like, I don't know, hundreds of, a whole wall of well, their banned yeah. books. Yeah. Some people were just sharing like a, a, Elif Shafak's um, 40 Rules of Love. The Arabic translation is banned. A lot of people had this book by Saud Sanusi, Mama Hissa's Mice, uh, which is forthcoming in English translation. But the, I mean, the thing is, most of these books you can get either, you can order it uh, from uh, from Neil Wafarat or Jamalon or something, Amazon, have it mailed to you personally, and nobody is going to check on that. You can buy it off Google Play. You can buy it off a Kindle version. You can download it illegally as a PDF. Um, so what it really does is it cripples your local book industry. Um, right. It does and not actually prevent anyone from reading anything. I think it's just bureaucracy run amok. Right, but it, but I think it's, it's one of those things like rolling back ICE or Homeland Security. Once you've got it in place, it's it's always easier to have more security. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have an if you have an entity whose purpose is to curtail freedoms, it will curtail more and more freedoms. If you have an entity whose purpose is to ban books, it will ban books. Or if its purpose is to, you know, uh, question the citizenship status of people and deport them, it will do more and more of that. I mean, its only way to increase its own power and influence is to do more of what it does, presumably. Right. So uh, how how do you then at this point pull it out by the roots? It's it's it take I mean I think it takes some brave people to say we need to stop this. It, we are not going to be harmed by these books uh even if they depict sexual acts and peeing. Well, considering I have to remember as I was saying that nobody reads. So like what's the threat, you know? Well, what if some one very vulnerable 16-year-old boy read this and then... Right. As opposed I to... I, I mean, I, no, I mean, like, the whole thing is, so, as opposed to, I don't know, watching, you know, violent porn, which we know every 16-year-old in the region has, like, access to, or, right. like, you know, I mean, all sorts of stuff online. It's, it's, no, it's weird. It's weird and ridiculous and... But it is hard to roll back these institutions. Sure. Sure, because also then there become maybe I don't know what how how it works if there's a sort of culture war in Kuwait and if it's something that like cultural conservatives or Islamists can sort of like weaponize by saying, you know, why wasn't this book banned? We could look at this passage. I mean, that's right. how it worked in Egypt, where not that many books, in fact, are banned. I mean, until recently, like it was, and each one was a bit of a cause célèbre, and often right. it was because. Um, you know, it would, attention would be drawn to it sometimes, like in Parliament or in the newspapers, and then some big brouhaha caused over it. It would usually make the book, like, way more famous and probably increase its readers more than anything right. else. Right, and in Egypt, you technically, you could not ban a book that was printed inside Egypt. The only things that were banned were things that were being mailed in. But you could sue, like once yes. the book, so you could right. have the book basically pulled from the shelves by right. alleging which, that it did any number of things. Right, which like, happened you know, to Magdia, uh, Magdia Shafi. 
And Ahmed Naji, right? Like someone brought a case against right. him. Right. Although that was against him. Not the, the book was allowed. The book was printed, I think, in Lebanon. It was allowed in the country. Uh-huh. And then the case was against him for... Before uh, giving the guy heart palpitations. Right, who, I know. Who read, it, who, read it, who read a description of it in the newspaper, right? He didn't no, he read, an e- he read an excerpt in the newspaper. Uh, he read an excerpt in the newspaper and like nearly had a heart attack. And I think that's a great book. His daughter came this close to reading it, so... I know. Well, think of the... Yeah, and, and these are the things that I saw on social media. So initially, it was just people posting images of their their banned books. Yeah. And then, of course, other people got on the hashtag to say, well, you know, children, you know, this blah, blah, blah. There are vulnerable people. Yeah, but those same people, I'm sure, hand their iPads over to their four-year-olds without, like, parental... Like, like it is bizarre. Um, I mean, I think I'm kind of like a... I think I'm a bit of a free speech fundamentalist at this point. Like, I'm pretty much anti-all censorship, mm. even with the downsides it can have. Um, it's sort of one of the things about the United States that I actually appreciate. One of the few exceptional ex- things that make <laughs> the United States... I mean, you know, the United States is pretty extreme in in, in freedom of speech, and, and, and I'm so unsympathetic to the argument that like people should not be offended or should not be provoked or should not like I'm offended and provoked all the time yeah no well uh, Fedi Zermut a Jordanian novelist his novel his third novel was just banned in in Jordan and he was uh, he told me he so he went in to uh, ask why to try and, and also his lawyer said he needs a piece of paper if, if they're going to contest it in court and of course they won't give him a piece of paper uh. but the guy said well these ideas are so far from our society and he said well if we never have ideas that are far from our society how are we ever going to change anything and who are you to determine what the entire society like what our society is i mean i can how how frustrating to spend you know, months or years writing something and then not have the opportunity to share it. Right. Well, he can see a photograph of it being sold in Cairo because it was published in Egypt, uh, but he can't see it in his own bo- in local bookshops. And so has there been any response by the authorities or has anyone picked up this this movement and sort of like, you know, been either supportive or like responded with a counter argument on the part of the actual like Kuwaiti government? I, not yet. Uh, but I, you know, I would like, it would be great to see it debated and come to parliament again. It would be great to see somebody stand up and say, we need books. Books are important. I think it's a, you know, it like rolling back ice. I think, you know, it just requires a certain amount of... Well, I mean, if you're talking... Do you think that ch- the chances are about the same? <laughs> it's about the same chances? I'm kind of I'm thinking it's similar. I'm not sanguine about the chances of rolling back ice anytime soon either. Uh, I yeah. think it's I think interesting it that it's become such a articulated demand in, in, for some people... Um, but, uh... I think it, it does exist in the same societal space, yeah. Well, and in the sense of the people who support it, too, are sort of like, we need this, we need to be protected. Right. Right? I mean, yeah, there's, I think, in most 
across the region, there's actually like a pretty strong, heartfelt feeling that like there needs to be some censorship. Like there need to be some adults somewhere like making sure that everything isn't said or written about. Um, it's just so weirdly arbitrary and ineffective, frankly. Yeah, and I think um, at least in Kuwait, uh, none of these campaigners are suggesting free speech fundamentalism. I think what they're suggesting is a m more transparent system and a system that is yeah, not banning 4,000 books in five years. I think they should just go for it, actually. Like, don't, don't, don't suggest more reasonable censorship. Abolish the censorship office should be the demand, mm. right? And then maybe you can... Right, accept something in between. Yeah, but you don't, you know... If you go into it sort of saying, like, we'd like a better explanation for why you banned our book. Like, no, just just go into it. Like, right. Um, you guys all need to be fired. Find new jobs. Go do something else more useful. Right. Find the budget of the censorship office and find out how much money is being spent on this. That's not a bad idea. See? Political strategic. <laughs> oh, well, um, cool. I hope something comes of that. Yeah, so do, so do I. I mean, the, it did seem in 2016 that they were making headway. Um, so it's, it was a bit of a bummer that they didn't. Because as I was working on a piece for The Guardian in 2016, they did keep emailing me saying, oh, maybe we, no, add this, it's going to get better. Oh, mm. You know, uh, and then... And it's a great story to tell. So you wrote something about it a couple I, of years ago? I did. And uh, currently for, there's a, a PhD student who's been studying this and she's putting together a, a larger piece for Arab Lit now because she spent this whole summer interviewing writers and readers and so she has a much you know when I wrote about it I most you know I did via phone and email and, and things so she was uh, on the ground with writers and readers so I think her piece will be much more expansive. Okay cool I look forward to reading that. Yes. And I think we're gonna wrap it up there for this week. Excellent. Well, it was great talking to you again after this long break. Yeah, it was cool to be back. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, goodbye, everybody. Yes, farewell. See you soon. <laughs>